Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human, we have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining us again this week. We're bringing you another From the Headlines episode today, but this week's headline isn't as controversial as what is or isn't making it into the latest spending bill, or even what President Biden's doing in Rome. What caught our attention this week is the nomination of Charles Sams III, or as his friends call him, Chuck, for director of the National Park Service. Sams would be the first Native American person to hold this position in its 105-year history, and we figured that it would be a great story to kick off Native American Heritage Month. Then we started digging into it a bit more, as we are wont to do, and we discovered that we knew almost nothing about the history of the Park Service and why it would be incredibly significant to have a Native American leader at the helm. Uh, Us. Discovering that there's more to a topic than we thought... (laughs) What's new, right? But man, this one's a doozy. It really is. And we'll get into it in just a minute. First, though, we are going to talk a little bit about Native American Heritage Month. That's right. November is Native American Heritage Month, or more commonly, American Indian and Alaska Native Heritage Month. This month is a time to celebrate the many rich and diverse cultures and traditions and histories of the people who lived and thrived in the Americas before the arrival of the Europeans. It's a time for us all to intentionally reflect on and acknowledge the important contributions of Native people, like similar observances, such as Black History Month or Women's History Month. Heritage Month is a time for us all to prioritize educating each other and ourselves about tribes and to raise awareness about the unique challenges that Native people have faced both historically and in the present. And it's also a time to identify the ways in which tribal citizens have worked to conquer these challenges. Now, already I can hear the sounds of eyeballs rolling and exasperated utterances of, not another history month, when is white history month, or whatever else you're feeling. And if that sums up your emotions about hearing about American Indian and Alaska Native Heritage Month, well, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad you're here. And listen, I get it. We get it. Um, it, it seems like there's a nonstop effort to uplift this culture or that gender or these people or everyone that doesn't look, think, or act like me. <laughs> we mentioned it uh, a really long time ago on this podcast, but I I used to feel and think 
that same way, that sort of exasperation that we were always focusing on these other groups. And well, do I remember the feelings that something was somehow being taken from me if we focus on these other people. If it were history, well, what was so special about it, right? If it were some sort of accomplishment, why were we celebrating it? it I could have done that if I had wanted to, right? That was kind of where my brain went. But here's the thing. I didn't. I didn't do the thing. And the things that make our history special are the trials and tribulations that had to be overcome for that history to even occur. If there's something that I've learned in the last couple of years doing this podcast, it's that everything, every single damn thing that has brought humanity to where it is now, the entire summation of history, every accomplishment, every achievement, every invention, everything has happened in the face of adversity and struggle. Taking the time to recognize the accomplishments and histories of some group of humanity does absolutely nothing to steal the glory from whatever you have done or accomplished. This isn't a competition, and don't let anyone convince you otherwise. There's nothing that's going to be forgotten by taking time to focus on the contributions and history of any particular group. No history will be lost. And in fact, the only thing we risk losing is a shallow understanding of how this world came to be. We stand to lose our ignorance, and perhaps that comes with losing some misconceptions. Perhaps that means confronting uncomfortable truths about our past. There's been some pushback against that in our society lately. CRT has been demonized by certain groups because their understanding of it has convinced them that it's meant to make white kids feel bad about themselves. That isn't what CRT is, for the record. If you believe this, we, we strongly recommend that you go check out our episodes from a few weeks back about that topic. Just this week, the Texas House Committee on General Investigating, chaired by State Representative Matt Krause, has published a list of roughly 850 book titles that Representative Krauss feels pertain to race or sexuality that might make students feel uncomfortable. But we can't be afraid to be uncomfortable, and we cannot seek out the works that challenge us and remove them from our schools. Schools are meant to challenge us. Education should make us uncomfortable. There's so much that we don't know in this world, and there's no shame in accepting that. There's an idea that we first came across as a meme, and I'm not quite sure where it came from. The earliest mention of it that we can find is from September of 2020 by Librarian Shipwreck on Twitter, but I'm sure the idea is older than that. The way that they phrased it is, studying history will sometimes make you uncomfortable. Studying history will sometimes make you feel deeply upset. Studying history will sometimes make you feel extremely angry. If studying history always makes you feel proud and happy, then you probably aren't studying history. History is more than we were taught in elementary school. We have to understand that. We have to accept that no culture or people is blameless in the long arc of time. Pretending otherwise is just cowardice. 
It's weakness. It's sticking your head in the sand and refusing to face an uncomfortable reality in preference for a sweet fable. That isn't to say that there aren't things in history that can make you happy and proud. That's as absurd as taking on guilt for the actions of your ancestors. The point of educating about the unsavory actions of our past isn't so we feel bad about who we are. It's so we can recognize where we come from and work to right the wrongs that have spanned generations. If we want to create a just society, we have to accept that parts of both our history and our current society are unjust. And I refuse to believe that most of us want to subjugate another group. This podcast kind of exists because we know, Robin and I know, that all of us, regardless of political leaning or scientific understanding or anything else, we want to build a better world for all of us. We've lost sight of that commonality. Because of fear, really, that's what it boils down to, because there are people in the world who, unfortunately, prioritize personal gain and benefit over societal cohesion. But we can't let the firebrands who would throw bombs into our society continue to succeed in leveraging our fears to divide us. If you've been paying attention to what's happening with these Facebook leaks, you'll know that humans are wired to react more strongly to negatives, to upsetting and inflammatory remarks. It's used to manipulate all of us to keep us engaged because engagement is profitable. But Facebook isn't the only platform that leverages this tactic. Pay attention to what you hear on the news. The stories that some group is trying to take something from you, trying to irrevocably change America, trying to make it something that you don't recognize. Listen for the people who use these arguments to justify stomping on the rights of others. The ones who call to the deeper doubts and secret fears we all have to actively work to overcome in order to convince us that we must take extreme measures. Hear what they're saying and recognize that they're manipulating your better instincts to seek stability and safety to benefit their own goals, and know that these stories of the downfall of all that you know and love are lies. Because here's the reality. There's only one thing that is constant in our lives, and that is change. This country is always changing. This world is always changing. We're not the same country we were 10 years ago, let alone 100 years ago. Change is the immutable law of existence. And we've all been sold the fable that change is something to fear that we must work to preserve who we are, or failing that, we must somehow recapture what made us great again. But perfection has never been a trait that our country or any country has enjoyed. There isn't a single piece of our story that isn't troubled with conflict and struggle and change. Don't cling to a gauzy halcyon shaded dream of the way that things used to be. Study history deeper, look beneath the surface and find the struggles. Recognize and acknowledge them for what they are the story of what was. We cannot be judged by that story, by those actions, but we can and we will be judged by how we react to that knowledge. That is why these short, short months that we set aside to focus our attention are so important. Every one of them is a chance to learn and grow, to make ourselves better. You can resist it with an eye roll 
and a scoff, but you're only hurting yourself. You are capable of better. You are capable of discomfort. There is no shame in recognizing a shortcoming and working to change it. That is why we need these things. We have to force ourselves to view the stories of the outsiders in history so we can understand better, so we can grow as a society and, and work towards a world that works for all of us, not just the few that are fortunate enough to have control. I felt this was an important time or as appropriate time as any to lay out our thoughts on these sort of recognitions. But more relevant to the topic, <laughs> the effort to establish a time of recognition for the contributions of the first Americans, uh, that began as early as the turn of the 20th century. One of the first proponents was an anthropologist, an author, and a historian, Dr. Arthur C. Parker, the director of the Museum of Arts and Science in Rochester, New York. Now, Dr. Parker was a Seneca Indian and the founder of several American Indian rights organizations. He began his campaign by persuading the Boy Scouts of America to set aside a day for the first Americans, which they did from 1912 to 1915. In 1914, Red Fox James, whose tribal affiliation is unconfirmed, but he's thought to have been a member of the Blackfoot tribe, rode 4,000 miles from state to state on horseback, seeking approval for gov from governors for a day to honor Native Americans. He garnered the support of 24 governors and presented them to the White House. Unfortunately, this doesn't seem to have triggered the establishment of a National Day of Recognition. In 1915, the Society of American Indians formally approved a plan concerning American Indian Day. This plan called for Reverend Sherman Coolidge, himself himself a member of the Arapaho tribe, to call upon the country to observe an American Indian Day. Therefore, he issued a proclamation declaring the second Saturday of May as American Indian Day. This proclamation also appealed for recognition of the First Nations people as American citizens. However, such a proclamation didn't really carry the weight of a federal declaration. The first state to declare an actual American Indian Day was New York in 1916 which followed the, the example of the Society of American Indians designated the second Saturday in May as that day of observance. Several states then followed piecemeal on different days, but there was no federally designated observance. From the 1970s until the 1990s, actually, Congress enacted intermittent legislation concerning honoring Native Americans. There was progress in 1990 when George H.W. Bush approved a joint resolution designating November 1990 uh, National American Indian Heritage Month, but this was limited to 1990. So a new proclamation or resolution had to be issued every year. And it wasn't until 1994 that it actually happened every year from 1994 onward, right? But even then, that was still yearly, year by year, they had to issue a new proclamation saying, we're going to have a National American Indian Heritage Month or whatever name they chose to call it that year. It kind of fluctuated. It wasn't until 2009 that Congress passed the and the president signed 
legislation that established the Friday after Thanksgiving, you may know it as Black Friday, as Native American Heritage Day. To me, this story, it's short, right? But it's the perfect illustration of what we were talking about earlier. Uh, a 100-year campaign, thousands of miles ridden on horseback, work across generations and nations just to establish recognition. If that isn't a struggle of epic proportions, I don't know what is. And that's just to establish the day, just to establish the recognition of all that the, the First Nations people have contributed uh, to America, to the United States. Something like that, a day of recognition, to me, it shouldn't even really be controversial. And yet... <laughs> So let's get to the point of this session because we are almost, I think, 20 minutes in now and <laughs> we have gone on a bit of a tangent. <laughs> There's a little. It's fine. It's Listen, important context. I was, I was in my feelings whenever I was writing this that introduction because, um, frankly, in conversation with, with various people actually this last week... There's been a, um, a sort of ennui, a sort of uh, nihilistic view of America, I would say, about where we're headed and, and whether or not we're irrevocably uh, split, divided. And I've kind of been mulling on that in my subconscious this whole time. And it's just like... I don't think we are. I don't think, I really, really don't think we are split beyond all salvation in, in the United States. I know it feels like it, but I think coming back together, I think recognizing that America is, is, is fractured but not destroyed begins with remembering that we we all have we all do have this commonality and we're kind of being sold on this idea that we don't that uh, that that political ideology is the ultimate uh determinant of whether or not you and somebody else can ever agree on something you or somebody else have anything in common and it's a flat lie it's a flat out lie we've 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 fallen for this trap of using politics as a shorthand to address all of our problems you know what i mean like every yeah. problem we have is is somehow related to politics right now and and it's it's and it's only our politics you know, inflation is only Biden's fault, as if we didn't shut down the whole globe for almost a year and a half. Right. Right. All of the ports are backed up because of Biden. If if only the American president had that much power. <laughs> right. I, uh, I don't know. That'd be. Well, but but at the same time, also, yes, we're experiencing incredible job growth. We're adding more and more jobs to the economy. But at the same time, everything was shut down for 18 months. That's what we would expect to happen under any president as people are going out and getting back to work. Yeah. We can't reduce everything that's going on in our country and each other 
to politics. It's not a shorthand for a person's character. It's uh, all politics are. And what we need to recognize is a way to decide the best way for all of us, not for part of us. It should never be. It should never boil down to, well, I don't like it and my people don't like it. So therefore nobody can do it. Yeah. And that's where I feel like we've kind of, we've, we've lost the thread is, is it it has become this fight of, well, you're not allowed to do that because I don't like it. And it's crazy to me to see this sort of, I know this is not on topic and I'm sorry, but to see this, this, I don't want to call it hypocrisy because I feel like hypocrisy is too loaded of a word. Mm-hmm. But to see right now, it's it it frankly, it is Republicans who are who are afraid of and have always been afraid of this big brother society of censorship, of of losing our rights, and yet they're going out and trying to pull books out of schools and right. telling teachers what they can and can't teach and saying these these I mean, taking these incredibly authoritarian steps and acting like somehow that's protecting freedom. It's, it's twisted. It's, it's, it's twisted. the purest sense of irony, right? You're so afraid of an outcome that you unknowingly bring about it's happening. You work so hard to keep it from happening that you make it happen. And that's, that's what's going on right now. Yeah. It, I, I, and I can't, I can't unsee that. I can't not understand. I can't not think of it that way. Yeah. I don't know how else to view threatening to pull, not, 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 not smut from school shelves, but like Pulitzer right. Prize winning books, things that, that address um, complicated things like, like, like relationships between slaves and relationships between slaves and their owners and, and, love between people and these nuanced topics that have some sort of i don't know taboo attached to them because they do make us uncomfortable but that should be why we look at them we should not be hiding from it we should be addressing why it makes us uncomfortable right and and like so so even if even if a person who encounters one of those books is never going to get to the place of accepting that as positive, for example. Because we can't always assume that if you encounter these kinds of things that you're going to take them in and they'll become a part of you. Right. But even still, I don't understand why they would take away the tools that a person needs to understand things in order to form their opinion about them. Right. How are you supposed to know what you think about something when you don't you're never exposed to the thing. And I've, I've seen this argument spiral because mm-hmm. there's this bad faith thing. I, I, I think what I forgot how it happened, but somebody was talking about, um, I think it was pornography, right? And they were saying something was, oh, oh. Okay, it was that Netflix show, that Netflix um, mockumentary or, or, or 
that movie about um the uh, uh the the girls uh, and the pageants uh what was it um oh. or the dancers um, yes it was. it was like cuties or or something like that yeah yeah and it it, it was like this this huge deal <laughs> in 2020 i guess um it was forever a really ago big deal i had some very significant conversations about it yeah and i was talking to somebody i was like well have you watched it have you actually seen what you're so upset about and they said no and i was like well then how do you know what you're upset about and they're like well i don't need to watch uh pedophilia to know it's bad and i couldn't get through to them that they have been convinced of something that isn't true, that the movie right. doesn't contain what these these things that they are being told it contains. Right. And that they are the irony was the irony was the whole time they're like, I'm not a sheep. I don't just believe things that people tell me. And I'm like, well, you've bought into this story about this movie. Like, what do you mean you're not a sheep? Right. You're like the ultimate sheep right now. You're not even. Uh. <sighs> anyway. Yeah. If we if we if we treat our society like that where we just shoot from the hip and and remove stuff from the shelf because somebody told us that it was offensive, you know, or and and we don't trust our teachers to teach our kids the the things that happen in the world, right? We're, we're like willfully plunging ourselves into ignorance. Right. I, I guess I don't understand the difference between, like, why is it not okay to take down a statue? But it is okay to erase entire perspectives in our school libraries. Right. Right? I mean, we know, we know that kids, that LGBTQ kids are at a much higher risk of self-harm, of depression, and of suicide because they don't feel accepted and represented in the places where they spend the most time. And right. yet, we're going to remove those perspectives that might actually help them feel a part of a whole. That might literally save their lives. Right. Because we, we are afraid of making people who might not like that feel uncomfortable. It's ignoring one kind of discomfort for another. Well, it's I saying, don't want I would mine rather... to be uncomfortable. Yours can. You yeah, can. Exactly. But me and mine don't want to be uncomfortable. Exactly. I would rather your child feel like the outcast than my child ask me why two dudes were kissing. Right. It again, it's it is it all comes back to, though, what we were talking about earlier, that that certain individuals, bad faith actors who who only have their own interests in mind are pushing these stories that are filled with this charged language about changing some America or uh, or stealing something from you that that is intangible and incapable of being stolen. You you cannot steal somebody can't steal your identity from you. They can make you want to change it. They can. Mm -hmm try to disabuse you of it they can mock you for it but they cannot literally take it from you but that's one of the lines that's that's the undercurrent of what's being right. pushed on on certain networks is is that you are no longer going to be an american because america is not going to be america anymore so 
<laughs> that is why, bring this back in, that's why you have to, you have to draw attention to certain things so that we can focus what we look at, we can focus what we talk about, what we're thinking about, and reflect on these challenging topics, and hopefully, hopefully, take away the important lessons, the important benefits, the important good things that came from these, and, and push that forward, and learn from that, and grow, and not repeat the mistakes of our past. And that has to do with national parks somehow. <laughs> it really does, you guys. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> I promise it really does. Um, it, act, it does in a, in, in a big way, and it's because of Mr. Sam's. Um, we'll bring you there. We'll walk that path, and we'll mm -hmm. explain what we're talking about. But first, uh, let's talk about the National Park Service and, and Mr. Sam's uh, appointment i can't call him chuck because i'm not his friend but i really I know. want to i really want to yeah so what are our national parks really and and why does mr sam's appointment matter well well i'm so glad that you asked i think we have to start by talking about how we ended up with national parks in the first place and it's been a little while since we invited you all to jump in the fireside time machine with us mm, so it's true hop on board right this time, we're rewinding all the way back to 1841. And that is the year that a man named George Catlin, who is an American artist famous for his portraits of Native Americans and paintings of the American wilderness, first began advocating in a book that he wrote for the creation of a nation's park to preserve the beauty and the wildness of the West. In it, he hoped that we could protect and preserve grasslands and wolves and buffalo and the culture of the Plains Indian tribes. He idealized, uh, and this is a long quote here, a magnificent park where the world would see for ages to come the native Indian in his classic attire, galloping his wild horse with sinewy bow and shield and lance amid the fleeting herds of elk and buffalo. <laughs> that sounds a lot like a living zoo of Native Americans, but it's clear that the intention there was good. It's not what we ended up with at all, but it was an important part of the conceptualization of what would become our national parks. I would just like to point out that in 1841, uh, George Catlin had already written off the East Coast. <laughs> He's like, I want to preserve the beauty of the West, okay? The right? mountains and the plains. This this BS over here, this Appalachian Trail, this no, no, no. You you guys just go. Right. No, actually somebody, there's a really whole long story about how in 1932 he went on this 1800 mile journey through the plains and into the West and all the beautiful things that he saw and and all of some, that. So as somebody who has taken that journey in a car over the course of three days, I got to say, not my favorite. I'm assuming his experience was a little different. Right. Right. <laughs> um, so jumping ahead 30 years, we're now in the in March of 1872, Congress passed the Yellowstone Act, which established Yellowstone National Park in what were then the territories of Montana and Wyoming as a public park for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. The park was placed under the control of the Secretary of the Interior. 
In the years that followed, more parks and monuments were established in the same way, many of them carved from the federally owned lands of the West, and thus a national and global movement of preservation through national parks and monuments was born. Well, at least that's the textbook version of the story. But oh man, it sounds so good. I know. America set up this great tradition of preserving, you know, our history and our land, and like we did something right for once. And yeah, yeah. No, let's let's try a different version. All right, dang it. I was I was ready to be happy. Um, in 1872, (laughs) Congress quote unquote gifted. 2.2 million acres of land to the American public and called it Yellowstone National Park. The land was far to the west in a rugged territory that few, quote, civilized uh, people had ever seen. It was, at the time, considered to be the last place in the west to be discovered by white people. (laughs) Fur trappers and gold prospectors were some of the first white settlers to explore the area. But the land was, um, well, it was far from uninhabited. (laughs) Right. Indigenous people had been living on the land that would become Yellowstone for more than 10,000 years. A total of 26 tribes have ancestral connections to the land. And it was the permanent home of members of the Yosemite and the Mountain Shoshone tribes. Other tribes journeyed into the park in the summer season, tracking buffalo and other migratory animals. Obsidian Cliff was a favorite stop, because the rock there is ideal for creating arrowheads and stone tools. The tribes had many names for the lands. The Crow called it the Land of the Burning Ground, or the Land of Vapors. The Geysers, they called Bide Mahpe, Sacred, Powerful Water. The Blackfeet called it Many Smoke. The Flatheads called it smoke from the ground, and the Kiowa called it the place of hot water. More than 1,600 tribal cultural sites exist inside the park's boundaries, and for many of the tribes that spent time on those lands, it was, and still is, considered sacred ground. The treaties of Fort Bridger and Laramie in 1868 essentially cleared the land of its native inhabitants before the park was officially established. Though, some did resist and try to stay, which is, I think, a theme that (laughs) we saw play out with a pipeline most recently. Ongoing, really. Mm -hmm. But in addition to establishing the park for preservation and conservation, the Yellowstone Act also declared that all persons who shall settle on or occupy the land without special provision should be considered trespassers and removed. And because the act now protected the land from the, quote, wanton destruction of the fish and game within said park and against their capture or destruction for the purposes of merchandise or profit, end quote, those who would have hunted and fished the land for food and trading purposes lost yet another element of their livelihood and a sizable one at that. Eventually, the uh, Lacey Act of 1894 would prohibit all hunting within park boundaries, even those hunting rights that had been previously granted to tribes. In Ward v. Racehorse, 
the U.S. Supreme Court would determine that the creation of the National Park and the Lacey Act took precedence over rights previously granted through treaties. So we had made a promise of rights, of certain permissions that the the the, the native people would have. And then we made rules taking those rights away. And then we used our own system that we had established to say, yep, we did a good job. So we investigated ourselves and found ourselves innocent. Yep. That's what that boils down to. Nailed it. And I mean, yeah, that's <laughs> just, as, just as messed up as it sounds. So quickly after the park was established, its superintendents worked to make the park, quote, safe, which is a joke, uh, for visitors by forcibly removing natives from the land. They also told visitors that, quote, primitive savages did not live in the area because they were, quote, afraid of the geysers and other thermal activity, which was absolutely untrue, but <laughs> made those coming to explore the park feel much more secure. Manipulating somebody's sense and desire for security. Hey. To get them to do something. A tale as old as time. In reality, the reality rather is that uh, ejecting the native people from their home to make way for tourists was definitely not a uh, smooth process. Right. The park was established during the height of the Plains Wars, <laughs> which, which it was a huge, huge set of battles between many of the Western tribes and the United States government. Right. This was contested land. Pause. Were... Pause. Pause. How many people just learned about the Plains Wars for the first time? Oh, gosh, I didn't even think about that. I'm willing to learn it was pretty much everybody that didn't grow up on the Plains. Yeah, probably. Because Very even, true. Even in Missouri, which is not not on the Plains, there's an argument for part of it in the north. Eh, not really. Um, we didn't talk about this very much. Yeah. I think maybe one unit when I was in elementary school talked about the Plains Wars. Yeah, that's that's... I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I just, this is, that is my point. That is why we have these history months because. Right. Because of this. Like, did you, dear listener, know that the United States fought many actual wars, declared wars against the people who were here first? Just, they just fought wars because they could. But the point is, like, this was this was contested land. It wasn't like this was nobody's land and then suddenly they were trying to move, remove people from it. In 1877, th there were 2,000 U.S. soldiers and 700 Nez Perce tribe members who were locked in a fierce conflict over the tribe's relocation from Oregon to Idaho. And during this conflict, the soldiers pursued several bands of the Nez Perce tribe members into Yellowstone when it was, you know, full of tourists. And their fight made their way to the actual tourists visiting the park. Two different tourist groups fell into encounters with the Nez Perce. One was killed. Two others were seriously injured. And then the rest of the tourists either scattered into the forest or were granted the protection of Chief, Chief Joseph, who, who was the chief of the, the bands that were fighting. And they were escorted back to their camps and given horses with which they could leave to go find the U.S. cavalry. 
Chief Joseph eventually surrendered many months later at the Canadian border. But the incident in Yellowstone was widely recounted as evidence of the need to make the area, again, quote unquote, safe for tourists by eradicating the Native American tribes. And this story was mirrored all throughout the West as new parks were established and promoted to visitors who were intrigued and enchanted by the rugged beauty of the unspoiled landscape. For every gift given to the American people, and I put American in quotes in our notes, for every gift given to the American people by our federal government for care and conservation and enjoyment, land was taken from those who cared for it first, whose entire subsistence relied on careful conservation, and who enjoyed the land through deep spiritual and practical connection to it. You mad? I can see it. I'm very mad. Uh, yeah, I am. I, I, it's... <laughs> This every is a time thing to we be talk about it, no, it is, and it should be. Um, every time we talk about Native American history on this show, it literally always makes me go, "Jesus Christ!" I, I, I it, it, mm. mm-hmm. anyway, this is this is why we're basically dedicating. We at Fireside are dedicating November to discussing stories that are important to the Native American people Mm -hmm. because this is not to overgeneralize my experience here, but I'm assuming that if the stuff like this, which, you know, I only learned about in detail while we were doing these uh, shows is, you know, the first time I've seen these details, I'm assuming it's like that for a lot of people. And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. We wouldn't have half of the problems that we have when it comes to how we treat the native population in America if people understood the entirety of the story. Or at least not the entirety. You don't have to know the entirety. You just have to know more than one side of it. More than one facet to understand that, oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. So despite the fact that the national park system and the people who work within it are doing important work for the ecology and preservation of some of the most beautiful parts of our country, it's important that we understand the history of these places that have become the trophies of the American landscape. These are icons across the world. We have national parks because the Native American tribes who occupied this land were deemed primitive savages, less than human, and an obstruction to westward progress. That is why it was so incredibly significant that Mr. Sams has been nominated to lead the National Park Service. But if you're anything like us, (laughs) you might be wondering what exactly the National Park Service does. Right. Right. So, it, I mean, you kind of feel like it's there in the name, but also you're kind of like, but... But, but like, what, what, what all does but it like, encompass? Yeah. So when we as a nation first began establishing these public lands and monuments, there was no central management system for them. The Western Parks and Monuments were managed by the Department of the Interior, 
while some of the other monuments and historical areas were administered by the War Department or the Forest Service, even the Department of Agriculture. Uh, But in 1916, President Woodrow Wilson signed an act to establish the National Parks Service. It would become a new federal bureau inside of the Department of the Interior, and it was tasked with protecting the 35 national parks and monuments that had already been established under the Department of the Interior. And then it would it would protect the ones that were yet to come. An executive order signed in 1933 uh, transferred 56 national monuments and military sites to the control of the National Park Service as well. Then the General Authorities Act of 1970 expanded that purview to include all national, quote, superlative natural, historic, and recreation areas. Today, the national park system includes more than 400 areas covering more than 84 million acres in all 50 states, D.C., American Samoa, Guam, Puerto Rico, Saipan, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. It protects more than 121 million museum objects, 68,000 archaeological sites, 27,000 historic structures, 2,461 natural historic landmarks, 40 national heritage areas, and 17,000 miles of trails. And there are hundreds of important I would, I would probably argue thousands of probably. important native sites within the care of our national park system. Right. The service is focused on promoting and regulating the use of these areas and objects in a way that conserves the scenery, the natural and historic objects, and the wildlife that they contain for the enjoyment of the public now and for future generations. More than 20,000 employees care for the parks and monuments from cleaning the bathrooms to maintaining the native plants, to monitoring the health of the wildlife. They conduct tours of the parks to point out areas of interest. They take your money when you want to park, and they sell you the cool keychains in the gift shop. They also work with local communities to help preserve local history and create important recreational opportunities. You know, the National Park Service also maintains the trails in our national parks, right? And I have always considered I've, in, I've I've for my entire life I've entertained rather uh, in my retirement working for the National Park Service going out and just maintaining trails just getting paid to hike through and you know or more realistically probably take a gator through some of these areas with a yeah. chainsaw and, and clean up fallen logs and, and rake it up and just maintain the trail just because I feel like it would be a great way to stay out and active and involved mm-hmm. um, I know that's way off beat but still I, I just that part would be pretty cool National yeah. Park Service does a lot of really good work they do um, anywho <laughs> Let's get to the significance of Mr. Sam's. Um, There are very few properties in the continental United States under the governance of the Park Service that don't have some sort of connection to Native American history and culture. Today, the National Park Service works closely with Native partners to preserve the archaeological, historic, and natural sites important to both the parks and the people. In many parks, Native American experts interpret the native sites for the park service and its visitors. And on an organizational level, there are many programs that work to integrate the importance of First Nations peoples 
into the Park Service, like um, the Tribal Preservation Program, which works to preserve and protect resources and traditions that are of importance to Native Americans by strengthening their capabilities for operating sustainable preservation programs. The American Indian Liaison Office, which provides guidance to National Park Service uh, field and program managers to enable them to interact with American Indian tribes and Alaska Natives on a government-to-government -government basis. And the eth Ethnography Program, which focuses on the people groups linked to the parks by religion, by legend, uh, deep historical attachment, subsistence use, subsistence use even, uh, or other aspects of their culture. But it wasn't always that way. For much of the service's history, these valuable and even sacred sites and traditions were cared for, interpreted, and communicated with park guests by people who had no connection to them. Then, as focus turned to trying to honor the history in a more real way, Native employees were given opportunities to share their own histories. Driven by collaboration and cooperation, these Native employees have pioneered new ways to bring their stories and their culture to the parks. To have a director like Charles Sams, who brings with him both a Native perspective and community development experience, would deepen that connection even further. Sams is a native of Oregon and a member of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. And that consists of the Umatilla people, the Walla Walla, and the Cayuse people. He has served as a longtime administrator with the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, working hard to establish connections between the native government and the communities around it. He also served as the national director of the Tribal and Native Lands Program at the Trust for Public Land. Bringing SAMS into this role at the National Park Service under the Department of the Interior, which is now for the first time also helmed by a person of Native heritage, would hopefully help bridge, the, help bridge both the, uh, the practical and the emotional gap between Native American people the federal government that took their land and made it a tourist attraction, and those of us who experience these lands without the important contextual history that helps us understand them fully. Right. It's, it feels so obvious that it would be important to have somebody like Charles Sams in this role because of that deep connection. But again, because we so often don't know the history of these places that we visit, or we just kind of observe it as a as a, a learning moment or as a, oh, hey, this used to be here or this used to happen. Bringing this holistic perspective, I think, is, is a really important step. And there are a lot of people out there who are calling for the return of national parks to tribal control. I feel like that's a really big step. Um, I don't know that that's a place that we'll ever get to. But this feels like, like maybe an important in-between move as we're trying to reconcile the way that we used to function as a country and the way that I hope that I want us to function going forward. Um, and it seems like for miraculously uh, one of the limited times, uh, the nomination of Chuck, ah, I did it. The That's nomination okay. of uh, Mr. Sams is is largely 
uncontroversial. It's it's right. not super. It's not being held up, um, at least overly much. Right. At least there in are, my research, I couldn't find any good arguments against. Oh, there's it. there's no good arguments against it, but there are. So there's a push to slow walk all of Biden's nominations to right. to to uh, positions of of power, <laughs> um, and so <sighs> that just feels so frustrating like, in a situation like this. It, it I don't I don't think Sam's is going to be held up. But I don't know if it's going to happen as quickly as it should. And that's what I'm worried about. Right. Um, so if you're hearing this and you're like, wow, this is great. You should call your representative. Yeah. Your, your senator. And, um, and be like, hey, you should, you should approve this guy. You should definitely get him through. Um, that's, that's one way you can get involved directly in, in any nomination is to use your right as a constituent to pressure your representative, your senator to do the thing that they are elected to do, which is represent you in your interests. Right. Um, so you can you can call, you can send an email um, to 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 put that pressure on to get them through. Um, we talked about a long time ago. I feel like I don't remember when it was how uh, how delaying the nomination, delaying the appointments of um, cabinet officials of people in charge of these government agencies is actually very detrimental to the United States security and to its their longevity. And this, this, that applies here too. It really does. Um, because Sam's as part of the national park service, they're also the agency that helps maintain our national parks and minimize the threat of things like wildfires of things like, uh, landslides they they are the service in charge of that they're your first Um, line of defense if the volcano that is in the northern part of this country ever decides it's really gonna erupt yeah they're your first line of defense it it's not it's not beneficial to anybody except for somebody trying to score political points uh to to slow walk these nominations it we need to get them through um like i said sam's probably not going to be a problem whatsoever i don't think anybody's actually openly opposing him but i'm just plugging that importance it's it's not okay to not have people in charge doing right. these things yeah and, and we haven't had a national park service director for a number of years now yeah um, so this it's great timing and and hopefully it goes through i couldn't without rem- much contest yeah do you remember why we didn't have one was it just that the trump administration never nominated one or I feel like it was that somebody stepped down and they never filled the role. Yeah. Or they chose not to retain the person that would have rolled over. And something just like of... that and just left it open. There were a lot of of those positions that the Trump administration decided to leave open. Yeah. And I don't know that I've ever heard a good explanation as to why that's the case. I, I, I don't know anything. At least I've, I, I can't think of anything that doesn't border on conspiratorial that right. I've heard. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, but a lot of the positions within, within the government were being occupied by, uh, what was it? Um, what's it called? Interim. Mm-hmm. 
not really appointees, people who didn't actually need approval, which is not great because there's a reason we <laughs> right. have people going through an approval process. Right. Um, but if the political if the political calculus at the time was that uh, the Democrats would have held up these nominations, um, then I kind of understand trying to sidestep that. I, yeah. I just don't know what that is. Um, I just don't know what the logic yeah. there is. Anyway. Anyway, hey, if you know the logic, right? If you, yeah. listener, know why it is that we have not had an official National Park Service director, we've had an acting National Park Service director for the last several years, we would love it That's if you would board. let us know. Acting, not interim. Acting. Oh, I, I feel fine. like they're it's probably, interchangeable. It means the same thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, you should let us know, and you can do that in one really, really easy way, and that is to go to our website, firesidebreakdowns.com. You can listen to this episode again. You can check out our show notes and find all the cool things that are in our sources because um, we know that we went crazy last week and we talked for a really long time about ADHD. So this time we tried to keep it to the right amount of time, but there's so much more to this story. So you can find all of our show notes and you can also click on our contact form and send us a note and let us know all these things that we don't know. If you feel generous after listening to this episode and you love the work that we're doing, you can click on the button up in the top right corner of our website that says support. And what that will do is take you to our Patreon page where you can sign up, join the crew and help us in our goal of reaching enough funds. I think the goal is $400 a month for a professional editor to work on these episodes. That's one thing that we would really, really love to be able to do. We know that it'll improve the quality. It'll take some things off of our plates and just overall improve the product. So Mm -hmm. our patrons get some pretty cool stuff, get a newsletter. You get access to our rock awesome playlist. It's uh, so good. It's so So good. good. And it's good for everything, you guys. It's not just good for studying. I'm trying to learn how to play first-person shooter video games, which for somebody who peaked at Sega Genesis is real difficult. Real difficult, and I'm old. So okay, okay. I, well, Easy. I mean, like, I you know what I mean. I like this technology isn't. It's not second nature to me the way that it is for my kids. Okay, that's what I mean. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Um, I like being able to move the character and the camera at the same time is giving me significant <laughs> trouble. But <laughs> the point is, our playlist is awesome for everything, including playing video games and not hearing yourself yell swear words. Every time you die. <laughs> you know, if you can't hear yourself, you'll just start yelling them louder and louder until you can. Right. Oh, I and know. then your neighbors are wondering what sort of domestic disturbance is going down next door. Yeah. Every once in a while, I'll get a look from my kids. It's like, do you know what you just said? I don't think you do, mom. I, I have no idea. Yeah. yeah I, uh, I used to play with my window open up here. <laughs> I try not to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. <sighs> Luckily, I don't play the game that you that like really upset me <laughs> anymore. So, oh gosh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, what was I going to say? I don't remember what I was going to say. So, know. we're doing good news a little differently this week because mm-hmm. honestly, the whole topic of of Mr. Sam's nomination that is good news. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, we're going to take this opportunity to talk about something that hooked into our easily distracted little brains and uh, speaking of playlists sucked us in for a hot minute today a little bit 
and maybe <laughs> yesterday and probably tomorrow. Um, because that's how my brain works. Uh, so I randomly discovered an artist named Cole McGinnis uh, yesterday, and uh, he is an incredible musician, an incredible talent. He's a PhD student and uh, composes, um, and he's, man, I don't know if he technically qualifies for it, but I'm pretty sure he's a basso profundo. He's a true bass, but he also has a range all the way up to the tenor. Just really, really, really incredible work. He also plays violin and cello and Um, things, many things. This one, is it a mandolin? Is that a mandolin? Uh, It looked like a mandolin, but I don't know if it actually was a mandolin. There's a lot of things that kind of occupy that sort of space in the musical Mm -hmm. instrument world. Pear-shaped guitar-like object? Yeah. So they're not always necessarily a mandolin. The more you know. Um, But yeah, anyway, so we have been mildly obsessing over him for several hours. Uh, He... If you are as nerdy as we are and listen to like Critical Role, you will recognize some of his work because he has written several songs for them. Um, But more, uh, I think, more relatable to most people is his uh, are his videos on uh, YouTube. Uh, You can watch him perform covers of a lot of really great music and a lot of really good sea shanties. I don't know why it's so good, but it is. It is so good. It's so good. He, we don't know him. He doesn't know us. Right. But I'm still encouraging guys, just go check it out if you want to smile and listen to something that might well probably give you goosebumps because it gives me goosebumps every time. If you're a Witcher Um, fan and getting ready for the new season to come out, he did a cover of Toss a Coin to Your Witcher that is actually goosebump worthy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He also has some Pirates of the Caribbean covers and some... Uh, Warframe. That's my current obsession is is cover of a, a Warframe song, mm-hmm. um, which if you follow us on Instagram, you will hear the sample of in my story, in our story, because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Warcraft, um, all kinds of stuff. Or you would have heard, I guess by the time this episode comes out, that story will no longer exist. Oh, this is why you got to gotta follow us. We should save this the highlights. Hmm? We should save it to highlights. We could. We could do that. But I'm just saying, this is why you should follow us on the social medias, mm-hmm. because we're not going to save everything, every cool little thing that we come across to our highlights for you. All right. It's true. We it's can't true. You got to get on it. I actually gotta, completely forgot there. to tell people about social media, but uh, we are on Facebook and Instagram. You oh, can yeah. find us. Fireside Breakdowns. Pretty easy. You can actually also listen to our podcast on Facebook uh, on the mobile app for right mm. now. Mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. cool if you want to listen to some other episodes maybe that's yeah. how you found us that's cool that would be super neat yeah yeah if you want to ever if you ever want to drop us a line and let us know how you found us that would also be nifty yeah, anyway super helpful. we should let you go because it is time <laughs> it is time we should let so, you go yeah thank you everybody so very much for listening to us um we are looking forward to discussing uh further uh, stories of interest and of import to the First Nations people. Um, if you just going to put it out here into the world, if you happen to have a connection to a tribe, to somebody who would be willing to come on the show and talk about uh, their experience as uh, one of the members of the indigenous populations in America, we would love to have you um, because it would be great. Yeah, that's be why. Awesome. Nailed I'm so it. excited about this month. I am too. 
Until next week, then, have a wonderful week and take care of each other. Bye.